when I walk into Kenmore Square and see this ugly monstrosity, you know, of a hotel that is standing in the spot where there used to be these beautiful old brownstones, it just looks like, you know, trailer park Disney World. Well, I'm just going to look at it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm going, well, something's got to suck. I guess this got to suck, too. Kenmore was a place where everybody came, where everybody hung out. The whole city came here, and uh, it, it was like, it was a, a bit unkempt. I mean, there was a, it just, it, it didn't look right to them. And th this, this hotel that we're standing in front of now, which has students living in it, and it's got the nice, the nice uh, restaurant in it that's getting relatively good reviews, that, that's what looks good. At the end of the 20th century, Boston's Kenmore Square got a serious makeover. An entire urban city block of shops, clubs, and diners was taken out and replaced with a hotel done in what some called a European style and what others call a miniature golf course style. The hotel is the glorious capstone to the new Kenmore Square. At least it is for the urban planners and developers who built it. But for many others, the hotel is a gaudy, surreal monument to the Kenmore Square that no longer exists. My name is Benjamin Walker, and this is The Theory of Everything. This week on the radio program, Architectural Forensics. Lily Dennison, Jim Ryan, and Mr. Butch all used to live in the old Kenmore Square. And in late 2003, I brought them back for a visit, a walking tour of a now non-existent place. This is where I used to hang, right here, bum up change, right at the Kenmore Station. This has been on movies. Rocky did the thing with it. And look at how they're treating it now. They don't respect this motherfucking place. I still do. It's still in my heart. You know this song's about Boston. Boston rock and roll start right here. I arrived here at the very end of 1979. I was actually on my way to move to New York and came to visit an old friend who had just moved to Boston. And the first day we got here, we went to the Rat. Because <laughs> I was a punk rocker and I was like, oh, the Rat, we gotta go to the Rat. And I got a job that night, and then I ended up staying here. Getting the job at the Rat in those days was almost like, in my mind at least, was like landing the lead in a Broadway play or something. I was really excited, even though I didn't make any money there. The Rat used to be called TJ's uh, at one point. And uh, the, the gentleman that owned it uh, leased out the club downstairs to Jim Harold, um, the same way that he leased out the restaurant space to me. And Jim, Jim took full responsibility for booking the bands, paying everybody, um, and eventually he bought the liquor license. And uh, the place became the Raskeller, and, um, and the Rat just became the club downstairs. Um, and it came by the name, honestly, there certainly were enough rats. <laughs> Do you want to see the Rat Skeller vicinity? I will show you. Come. I will show you, my brother. <laughs> the dumpster behind the Rat, um, sometimes you'd be walking in from the parking lot to go in the back door of the Rat, and 
there would be this vision of all the little hardcore kids with their shaved heads. They would jump up and down on the dumpster and get the rats all riled up and then just like kill them with their big boots. And it was totally like clockwork orange, bizarre, because the kids were too young to get into the club and they would just hang out back and kill the rats in the dumpster. The rat stories go on and on and on. The, the rat was a place where everybody could hang out and it was a particularly a social club for a lot of South Boston people. Um, I, 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 can't, I can't speak for anybody other than say that it was a social club and who, whoever belonged, there were some Charlestown guys involved, a c- couple straight from the Charlestown School for Bank Robbery right, 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 right to working the rat. Um, a, a couple of them were in the employ of Whitey Bulger. There's, there's no two ways about it. Uh, the bouncers at the rat were notorious. They were, you know... South Boston bred. You know, Whitey Bulger was a, a regular fixture at the Rat. When I read the books about Whitey Bulger, I know a lot of the names in those books because a lot of them worked at the Rat. A lot of his guys were bouncers at the Rat. The door guys uh, at the club were essentially the South Boston boxing team in, in every weight class. And, I mean, the, the smallest ones were were the roughest of any of them. And, and everyone had a thing to prove and the sad thing was that all these guys could take care of themselves, and they wore these gloves, these zap gloves that had lead in the uh, in the knuckles, and you could splay someone's features over their entire face with you know <laughs> a well placed blow, and it was totally unnecessary. I don't know how many times we got closed down for uh, assault with a shod foot and uh, and various and sundry other. Uh, but the, the licensing board was always kind enough to allow us to do it on certain, uh, on slow days. <laughs> so it was usually a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And we would take the time to uh, disinfect uh, the basement or <laughs> whatever. The bouncers would, at, they all had guns and stuff. At the end of the night, sometimes they would, uh, they would it, they'd go down to the club and they would spread bread out all over the floor and then sit up on top of the bars and turn the lights off and be really quiet for like five minutes and then they would turn the lights on and just start shooting their guns at the rats. There were lots of weapons around. Um, aside from the zap gloves, most of the guys had pistols. And then sometimes uh, there was one guy in particular who used to like to wear a suit and he would, he would come in the back and he would open his vest up and he'd leave, he'd leave his forty-five in the back in my storeroom because he didn't want it to drop out or anything like that. And there were bartenders who would come in and they would put their guns underneath the bar. You know, it was, it was just that simple. You know, the colleges were here and you had the college students um, and you had the Beacon Hill Brahmin types. But by and large, Boston was kind of a tough city, you know. One funny story, uh, Elvis Costello was playing up at the, uh, at the Paradise. And after a show, he came to the door here. And one of the guys, was, he was particularly glib and he was also a good boxer. And uh, the bouncer's like, you know, three bucks, whatever. And I guess, you know, he was Elvis Costello. He didn't want to have to pay to get into the rat. And uh, Elvis Costello said, well, you know, I'm Elvis Costello. And the bouncer pushed him out the door onto his ass right here on Com Ave and said, I don't care if you're Abbott and Costello, you're not getting into the rat for free. <laughs> This was never here. This was never here. Well, before it was uh, Bono and Nobles, 
bookstore. It used to be BU Bookstore. Before that, it was, uh, to be exact, I actually thought it was a business house. I never went in there that much. Over here, Batoni's used to be, uh, God damn, I can't remember that shoply, but it was like the Go-Go Club. I used to work there. It was called Narcissus. There it is. Narcissus. Yep, yep. Used to see some beautiful stuff. I seen fucking cops split his pants and his dick fell out. Oh, I was laughing my ass off. But now they changed it to BU something. I don't know what it is. The bookstore was definitely a big event in turning in turning the square around. Across the street was the it was the Kenmore Club, it was Cookie's, it was Narcissus. And oftentimes I would lock the door at the end of the night. Um, and I wouldn't let anybody out until that, that crowd disappeared because there would often be a really bad mix. The punk kids were, were often posers, okay, and <laughs> in a word, and, and meant no harm and, and were just, just, just were, you know, looked like that. And, and the, the disco kids, I don't know, there was just a, a, there was a chip. There was a chip on the shoulder kind of thing. Back in those days... The rockers and the disco people didn't get along very well. So at 2 in the morning, when the clubs would close, quite often, particularly on weekends, there used to be big rumbles in the median strip between the two venues. Um, you know, disco sucks, you know, punk rockers suck. And I was felt, always felt very fortunate to be able to stay inside of the rat and not have to leave and get involved in that fracas. The only, I did. I did go across the street to the uh, the disco once when they had the mechanical bull, and I, <laughs> I thought I'd take a ride on that. And I didn't. I didn't fare well. I'm. I might be a hillbilly, but I'm not a bull rider. Well, here at the New England School of Photography, uh, my dear friend Wayne, who used to be called Wayne Podwarney, who was uh, sort of our photographer, who who chronicled a lot of the events. Uh, he used to work here. Uh, he was, I think he, he ran all the, you know, took care of all the photography equipment for the school and he had keys to the place <laughs> and we had quite a few parties in the, in like, in the administrator's office in the New England School of Photography. It was great, you know, he would have like art openings. I remember one particular art opening, um, it was a baby photo show that everybody had to bring baby photos of themselves and he served, uh, uh, moonshine mixed with uh, uh, Nestle's Quick and Zwiebeck Toast, and the Gun Club were playing at the Rad, I think. And Jeffrey Lee Pierce was in in the New England School of Photography, it's like administrator's office, throwing up. It's pretty cool. So we had a sort of like there was like at a certain point in the mid '80s, there was sort of a three-point party going on here. So it was the Rat. New England School of Photography <laughs> and Storyville over there where the Buckminster Hotel is now. Well, it was a place where you could do absolute improvisational art. And bands would come from everywhere to do these arts in Kenmore Square. All through the early 80s, the Buckminster Hotel building was a, a band rehearsal building. So every single room <clears throat> in that hotel there was a different band in there and like in the summertime <laughs> all the windows would be open and it would just be this cacophony of rock and roll coming out of that building it was wild it was great Down
all over. That was our youth and our fun. Now we're getting ready to have our life done. And we ain't ashamed to say a thing. We try to do everything. Now, them days are done. They're over and through. Those days are done. What happened to Kenmore Square is not something unique to Boston. All across America, vibrant urban cultural meccas have been overtaken and destroyed by the forces of gentrification and condo development. But there is something particular, I think, about what happened to Kenmore Square, different than, say, what happened to the Mission District in San Francisco or Wicker Park in Chicago. You see, when the Boston University-led developers installed their European-style hotel, they essentially rewrote history because that's really what architectural gentrification does. It creates false history. The real history of Kenmore Square begins in the 1890s, thanks to the landfill project that also created the public gardens and the Back Bay neighborhood. But what kept Kenmore Square from ever becoming a stale residential neighborhood like the Back Bay was the railroad lines that brought people through and to the square. This is why there were so many hotels at the turn of the century, for the square was a gateway to the city. In fact, it took its name from a popular trolley stop. By the 1920s, the square had an established ambiance of mixed use. There were not just hotels, but residences and businesses. It was on top of one of these businesses, the Peerless Auto Building, that the city's service oil company decided to erect an illuminated sign in the 1940s. And in the 1960s, when the company changed its name to Sitco, it changed the sign as well. The Sitco sign still pulsates every night between the hours of 7 p.m. and midnight. It's an integral part of the city's skyline. Some Bostonians think of it as their Eiffel Tower. But for some reason, this fondness never extended to the thriving city district the Sitco sign used to illuminate. In 1983, when the city began to plan for the demolition of the Sitco sign, mass protests broke out. There was even talk of declaring the sign a historical landmark. Eventually, Sitco stepped in and offered to pay not only for the maintenance of the sign, but for its illumination as well. There were no mass protests, however when Boston University-led developers swooped down on Kenmore Square and destroyed that entire city block. There was no outpouring of support for the clubs, diners, and businesses that were all consigned to the wrecking ball. But to be fair, by this point, Boston University had already succeeded in destroying most of the square. There never really was a one thing to rally behind, for they dismantled the place brick by brick, By the time anyone figured out the final solution for Kenmore Square, it was too late. Perhaps I'm being naive to imagine that anyone would have bothered to fight for Kenmore Square had they foreknowledge of its future, for this is not the first time that Boston has poured concrete over a living, breathing cultural mecca. In the 1960s, Boston took out Scully Square, a downtown neighborhood like Kenmore Square where people came to eat, drink, and be merry. 
They tore down every structure and tree and replaced it all with the concrete nightmare that is now known as Government Center. But when it comes to Government Center, the architecture, the stark Eastern European architecture, is evidence that something used to be there. Government Center is so stark, so bleak, that one cannot help but recognize it, least unconsciously, an absent history. For Kenmore Square, the history becomes farce. The buildings of the new Kenmore Square are more like the Israeli villages that were hastily constructed after the war of 1948, bulwarks to keep the Palestinians from ever returning. They scream out, what history, what culture, what is here now has always been here and will always be. It is only at midnight that this lie loses its power. For when the Sitko sign clicks off, one can't help but notice that in Kenmore Square there is nothing on, nothing open, and nothing there. Let's go down and check out some more Kenmore Square. It looks to me like not not even Butch is hanging around down down here anymore. So, uh, and he was he was just Mr. Butch was like he was the quintessence of Kenmore Square. I got here in 1977. Yes, I did. I'm telling you the truth. This is where I'm from. This is what I did in the old days. Not no more anymore. Subway, Captain Nemo's. Nope, ain't no more of that shit. What's this book, Commonwealth book shit? Yeah, I'm right here in Kenmore Square. I'm telling you the truth. I'm very aware. I have to come back down to Kenmore Square and make sure the people know I'm here. Oh, yes, I know for many years out here in Kenmore, many beers. I was blamed at one point uh, for being the reason that there were homeless people in Kenmore Square uh, because I fed them out of the back door of my restaurant. And... Uh, I guess the Kenmore Association signaled me out at, uh, at one particular meeting saying that the, the, they couldn't get rid of the homeless people around here because uh, the guy Ryan was feeding them out of the back door of the rat. Ah, yes, uh, we'll see if Tom's in here. Oh, I don't see if Tom. Yeah, we'll see if Tom's in here. There we go. Ah, yes, we're in the store 24. No mistakes, no mistakes. Excuse me, is Tom here? He is? All right, I'm going to go see him. Say, Tom. Yeah, come, on, come, on, come on, come on. These people in the store 24 in Kimmel Square have helped me out ever since I've been here. Now we're going to go see Tom. All right, here we go. We're going to tell you, Tom. All right. Hello, Tom. Tom. Oh, how are you doing today, sir? Oh, give me a bump before I get locked up. Bump. All right. As we're doing an interview with uh, people that have helped me out in Kimmel Square, you are one of them. Well, Butch, anytime. <laughs> Our place is your place. Okay. We had to see Tom, because I love Tom. Uh, uh, nothing bad. Everything's good. Okay, Butch. <laughs> uh, I had to see Tom. Yep, I come down to Kimmel Square. This is places that helped me out in the cold and rain. They've helped me out ever since I've been a Negro, everything. These guys are good people, and I will never disrespect them. Never. This man is interviewing me. I never respect him. I used to hold, I used to hold uh, like, shows, 
and admission for the shows that Del Fuegos used to play, the Neats would play, and have all my friends. And we would have, admission would be two, two cans of food, which I was given to Pine Street Inn, and we would end up getting like a truckload of food to send to Pine Street. And the music would be free, and I'd usually, you know, put out a buffet so people could eat. And the odd thing was that, as I found out later, the, the, the people were going into Store 24 and stealing the canned goods to give to me. <laughs> Oh, yep, let me look at my square. Let me see, ah, I have to look at it, I have to look at it. This is Kim Moore Square. When Nixon uh, deinstitutionalized a lot of people, not, not Nixon, Reagan, same thing. Uh, when uh, they, they, they opened up a lot of the uh, mental institutions and let people out, and a lot of those people roamed the streets around here, and it was, it was unfortunate. Well, I'd wake up on the fire escape. I'd wake up there, and my head would start to wake. I'd come down in Kenmore Square, stand out in front of the liquor store, bumming up change. Ah, yes, I have to deal with life because I'm poor. I'd get my change and money. I'd look them eye to eye. I'd tell them the truth. I need some money, and I would not cry. I'd see people go by. Some of them would even give me a name. Most of them would say, Mr. Butch, there's no one else to blame. This was a good place to hang. Oh, yeah, this is a good place to hang. Hang over in the wall, smoke joints right there. Oh, yeah, I did all kinds of shit out here. It was, it was a scene. You know, um, writers from the Globe, from the Herald, from the Phoenix, uh, TV people, certainly lots of radio people, especially from the college stations. All the bands hung out, and, and everybody's friends came. And um, it was just a good mix. It was, it was just a feel-good kind of time. Now, why are we going to talk about the old days? Why, in the old days, Mr. Butch was sleeping in his truck. It was my home. Ah, nice truck. And the old day, in fact, right up here up the street, right across over there, sitting so didn't have parking meters. I'll show you. Yeah, I'll show you. They didn't have pocket meters at that time. And it was all blank spaces, all up and down here. I used to sleep here every day and night. Our ambulance crews park here every day. So I wasn't going to die. Oh, yeah, I felt pretty good. And I come out here, you know, and then there was a guy that used to drive his truck into the pocket meters. Oh, yeah, really? No shit. Right out here. You used to watch it. And a girl screwed a guy right in that very spot. Then her boyfriend joined in. I said, oh, man. I seen it. Oh, yeah, this is Kim Square. The, the one thing I think is missing in this neighborhood right now is, is the, the cultural diversity that was, uh, that was around. And by, by cultural, I mean like pop culture. And I, I don't mean antiseptic stuff like maybe that there's going to be a gap or a banana republic i i, I mean that there, there were people here who had style you know who were, who were actually like on the cutting edge of, of of just what they wore and and how they talked and how they acted and the music that they made and and there's i don't see that and that that's unfortunate because what you know culture dying is not it's not a good thing for society what makes a, a city a great place for artists and musicians and, and you know, radicals or whatever, bohemians, to live there is, you know, access to, to culture 
and cheap rent. When I moved here, Boston, it was cheap to live here. It like kind of had a lot of the good qualities of, you know, of a, of a big northeast city. You know, there's a lot going on here. But it was much less expensive to live here than in New York. Now I'm finding people are moving to New York because they can get cheaper apartments in Brooklyn than they can in Somerville. You know, it's ridiculous. It ain't going to be the same. It is never going to be the same. There is no life in Kenmore Square right now. I mean, it's early Sunday morning, and there seems to be no after effect of anything having happened the night before. And it's early in the morning, where on a Sunday morning at this time, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the streets would still be littered. There might be people still straggling around from having gone to a party up the way. Or people, I'd be inside working, and there'd be people coming to the door to see if I could let them in to cure a hangover or whatnot. And I, I don't see any evidence of anything like that now. Not at all. I rarely even come over to Boston anymore. I mean, I didn't even set foot in Kenmore Square for years when they started building this hotel. Because, like, why? What? There's nothing here. Why would you come to Kenmore Square? You know, you take away personality and uh, out of a place, and it, there's no longer any personality. You know, if everything is, it's a chain store and and a ugly hotel. Uh, there's no vitality there. You know, this has totally lost its personality. Kenmore just reflects what's happening in the city at large. Real estate is too valuable, and uh, you, you can't let somebody sit on something like that. And uh, it, it, it's happening everywhere. Any any large city's the same way. This is. I, I don't think this is anything. Again, it's not not anything malevolent. It's just the normal course of doing business in America. You know, I think that the Kenmore story is also a story of you know Boston. You know, I think Boston, as a city, is so conservative, and, and it's it's just students and and you know yuppies, whatever. You know, young professionals that you know dress up and pretend like it's sex in the city or something you know all the all the places that are successful in Boston cater to that and to me that's what Boston is now it's just you know it's young professionals that pay too much for apartments and pretend like it's New York and there's no character to it it's all you know it all comes off of television well as much as you can analyze you can analyze I'll tell you how the eyes uh, you see Boston's going to be the way it is. And we're all at the mercy of time, worry, waste, wear, change, unexpected events. Everyone is. I, I'm, I'm working up on the North Shore, and uh, I go into these homes and, and these McMansions and whatnot to, to work on people's homes. And, uh, and I'll see a degree on the wall, a recent degree. And I go, oh, you went to BU? Yeah. I said, well, I, I worked at the Rat for years. No way. And, then, and and one guy's wife says, oh, the rack? I know where that is. And the guy goes, oh, no, no, the rat. It's way different. You wouldn't have liked it. There were plenty of BU students here. And, and I mean, I, that, that guy isn't the, the first one that I've run into up there. Oh, you want to know why I don't live in Kimmel Square anymore? I will tell you the truth, and this is no lie. Oh, those Boston University police officers really screwed up my life for sure 
They have arrested me so many times. They have arrested me in ways you would not know. They do not want me to make friends with the students. They even know the students have to eat their sloppy food. I know exactly what I'm saying, and I am a very clean and sincere dude. I got out of jail. Nothing was the same. A friend came up to me, he said, Butch, there's no one left to blame. The building burnt down, it's gone, it's through. Kenmore is left like you, and now you will stay that way. Now you will stay that way. Now you will stay that way. That's it for this week's Theory of Everything. I'd like to thank Lily Dennison, Jim Ryan, and Mr. Butch for the guided tour of the old Kenmore Square. Special thanks to Wayne Marshall of WayneAndWax.com for the musical loop and to Mike of Mojo Records in Cambridge, Massachusetts for the musical history. For more information on the radio program and a complete audio archive, visit us on the internet at www.toeradio.org. My name is Benjamin Walker. Be sure to tune in next week for another Theory of Everything.